we want to finish uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. We started it last week um, with the first four, and I want to get right into the second four. Now, if don't panic if you're looking at your notes and going, oh my God, there's two pages. This is going to take forever. Um, <laughs> Because uh, we covered the first page last week. I just thought you might want the notes all together, all eight of those Beatitudes on one sheet of paper. So we'll very quickly review those and we'll go right to the back and cover the other four. So if you were here, you remember that probably. If you weren't here, then there you go. So remember we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon. He begins with what we're calling eight values that will produce happiness in our life, that we will actually be happier if we learn uh, these values, if we work these values into our life. And uh, just to review, the first one was humility. The second one was uh, a mourning over sin, not just ours, but others also. Uh, a, a mourning with God over the effects of sin and a desire to see people be free. Uh, the third was gentleness, that we are to learn gentleness from the Lord. And the fourth was uh, a desire for righteousness, not just uh, the obligation of righteousness, but a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, a building desire in our hearts for righteousness. And now you guys were supposed to go home Last week and perfect these four <laughs> so that we could move on. Everybody do that? Okay, good. Yeah, this is, uh, this is some work. All right, so we're going to pick right up with number five. And uh, again, we're in Matthew chapter five, if you want to read along. Um, five is uh, the fifth... Uh, Beatitude is very simple. Remember, uh, the word beatitude means blessed or happy. We're kind of focusing in on the happy part. We'd like to be happy. Yeah? So, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, this seems pretty straightforward. If you're merciful, you get mercy. If you're not merciful, you get something else, something worse. All right? And... Jesus is going to develop this just a couple chapters later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. And what I want you to think of, uh, mercy and judgment are often grouped together in the Bible as really two sides of the same coin. Um, if you do something to me that annoys me, I can use either side of that coin. I can judge you or I can show you mercy, right? But I'm going to do one of those two things. And so... Those being the two sides of the coin, where we see judgment verses, they usually tie together with mercy. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, Jesus says, For with what judgment you judge, however much mercy or vitriol is in that judgment, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. How many of you find that verse terrifying? Okay, just, a, wow, more of you should certainly scares me uh, because here's what's going on. He's saying that we get to establish our own standard of judgment and or mercy, that I get to establish with my life the level of mercy or judgment I'm going to experience from God, right? Now, 
I don't know about you, I'd like to peg way over on the mercy side. But in order to do that, I have to establish a standard of pegging way over on the mercy side, which means I have to do that towards others in my life if I want that standard. Now, you're probably thinking, uh, but God is better than I am. He's more merciful than I am, and that's true. And if all you had to worry about was how God was feeling that day, well, yes, God loves you. He desires mercy. You'd be in good shape. But you've forgotten someone. You've forgotten Revelation 12. There is an accuser of the brethren. You know how he works? Here's how it works. Someone offends you and or, 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 well, this, no, let's put it this way. You do something, and you're going, uh-oh, I, I, I blew that one. And you go to God, and you say, God, please show me mercy. Please forgive me. And God absolutely wants to do that. But the accuser of the brethren who accuses the saints before God day and night shows up and says, hey, God, that person that is asking you for mercy just a few days ago, they said this about this person, and I would like to invoke Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. God, I'd like you to apply this standard to their request. Now, God, who is just, is going to do what with his word? Yeah. See, don't just count on the mercy of God to be greater than your own mercy, because there is an accuser of the brethren the prosecutor in the court of heaven, if you will, who will continually be trying to use your words and your standards against you. You understand? So that's why I'm scared of this verse, because I know what God may overlook, the devil won't. And if I give him opportunity, he will take it. Amen? And who knows when I'm going to need mercy. So the point is, we establish our own standard or judgment, or mercy. And so it's to our own benefit to have a high value for mercy, not just towards me, but towards others. And what I want you to see is uh, how God looks at mercy. Let's just think of that for a minute. Um, one, he says that mercy is superior to judgment. James 2.13, I love this verse. It says, it starts with the same point we just made. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So again, there's that same principle of we set the standard. And then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What that word means, it's very interesting. That word means to arrogantly boast over. It means mercy walks right up to judgment, arrogantly says, judgment, I am so much better than you. Every time. Mercy goes, judgment. I'm better than you, and I'm better than you every time. Isn't that awesome? It kind of makes me want to be on mercy's side. All right? So mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what that means. Uh, and I want to talk about this again. We talked last week about partnering with God, that God wants to partner with us. I want to partner with God. Uh, I want God on my side. I want to be on the same team. I certainly don't want to be on the other team that's accusing. So... Uh, we know in Micah 7 that God delights in showing mercy, that he finds it delightful. And we're trying to learn to be like God. And sometimes this is requiring us to think in ways that are counterintuitive and, for, and foreign to us, really, uh, to delight in mercy, 
to get a kick out of forgiving people who are mean to me. That's weird, but that's God, right? Here's the other thing, though. In Ezekiel 33, it says, essentially, he takes no pleasure in judgment. He says, I get no pleasure from the death of the wicked. It, it doesn't do anything for me. I would rather they repent. Now, he has to deal with their sin. He doesn't overlook sin. And so sometimes there's the death of the wicked. The point is, he gets no pleasure in that. He gets no pleasure in judgment. And so if we're going to partner with God and God gets pleasure in mercy and no pleasure in judgment, can we partner with God if we get pleasure in judgment? See my point? If I want to be God's partner, I got to like the things he likes. He likes mercy. He doesn't like when he has to judge. He doesn't get pleasure in it. He's righteous, and he's always righteous when he judges, but he doesn't get pleasure in it. And so I think of how many times in my heart I've gotten pleasure in other people undergoing judgment. This is dangerous. In fact, in Proverbs 24, it says, when your enemy stumbles, uh, don't rejoice. God may see it and be displeased and quit judging that guy. God's going, I'm working on this. Oh, wait a minute. That's causing Tony's heart to rejoice over judgment. Uh, I'm going to stop. I'm more concerned about Tony's wicked heart right now. That he's getting a kick out of his enemy being judged. That's heavy. But we do it, right? Remember I told you, uh, talking about pleasure and judgment, I told you this a, a few weeks ago because we were talking about mercy. Remember Rachel and the, the show we were watching? There's that wicked character. This woman was super wicked. And Rachel goes, I don't like this woman. And I said, don't worry, babe, because I know how these shows go. I said, she's going to get hers. <laughs> They're going to get her. And Rachel goes, I don't want her to get killed. I want her to get saved. <laughs> now, I know that's not the way this show's going to go. <laughs> and I was right. But now I'm going, huh, because I'm kind of looking forward to her getting killed. <laughs> How many like a good show where the bad guy gets it in the end? Yeah. Or a good book where the bad guy, I mean, it's a pretty common theme, right? But <laughs> Rachel's heart was, no, I want her to get saved. I'm like, well, that's probably God's heart. So now I, I have to root for her to get saved, even though I know she's going to get killed <laughs> for the rest of the show. Guys, uh, even the Bible ends that way. The Bible ends with the bad guy getting his. All the bad guys get theirs. There's a lake of fire. The point isn't that that happens. And uh, I'm not sure it's wrong that we enjoy that in fiction or in movies. The point is that God doesn't rejoice in that. God doesn't get pleasure in that. God doesn't enjoy that. And so, yeah, there are times where our prayers, we're going to bring judgment, the judgments of God in the earth, when the judgments of God are in the earth, the people are in righteousness. But it's not something we're supposed to enjoy or get pleasure in. We're supposed to root for mercy. Mercy is superior to judgment. And so this is uh, what Jesus does. In fact, he does, not only doesn't you know, rejoice in judgment or get pleasure in judgment, it's just a tool to him for mercy. Remember, we talked about uh, Psalm 89, 
um, a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth are before your face. So we said there's only two lenses God has that he looks through in his glasses all the time. He has a mercy lens and a truth lens. Judgment, he looks through the mercy lens. Or in other words, he views judgment through the goal of mercy. I'll show you where you see that. 1 Corinthians 11, where he's talking about communion. He says, I wish you guys would, would judge yourselves so that you don't have to be judged from God. You should, you should examine your own lives. He goes, but, he goes, when God judges you, says he's chastising you so that you won't be condemned with the world. What's the purpose of God's judgment? To get you to repentance so that he doesn't have to kill you or throw you in a lake of fire, right? So even when God judges, it's through the lens of mercy. He's only using judgment as a tool to get us to mercy. How much better if we value mercy? And even if we see God judging our enemies, go, get them, God, push them at mercy. Get them in mercy, God. Get them in the place where they ask you for mercy. Mercy, God, get my enemies with mercy. I'm so excited about this. It's probably a better prayer. So, what's my point? You will be happier dwelling in his mercy. First, as a value, I value mercy for those around me. And second, as an experience, because I value mercy for those around me, I'm continually experiencing mercy from God because I need mercy continually. Yeah? All right. You got that one down? Okay, so that's five to work on. Let's go to six. Purity of heart. This one's actually easier than it seems, and uh, I, I just find this interesting. So he says, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who wants to see God? Good. This is a good crowd. Okay. Purity in heart increases our ability to perceive God. Now let me uh, explain to you, uh, I think this is super straightforward how this works. Uh, why we need purity in heart to be able to perceive God, to get greater understanding of him, greater revelation of the knowledge of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to use James 4.8. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, just pause there. How many of you want God to draw near to you? Yeah, all of us, right? So he says, you just draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So the question becomes, how do we draw near to God? Well, he kind of answers that in the next sentence. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, cleansing our hands has to do with our actions, sins. And we all get that. Uh, you know, we're, uh, the things that we've done that are wrong, uh, the, the, the overt sins, the things that, you know, I didn't mean to do that, sorry, I didn't mean to hit you when you said that, bad, you know, and I repent. And so we're cleansing our hands. That's really a literal, you know, interpretation of that. But you get what I'm saying. He's talking about sins, the outward stuff, the stuff that the Bible talks about that's sin. Or I've done this thing wrong. Or I've said this thing wrong. And so I'm repenting of my sins because I need to cleanse my hands. But I also need to purify my hearts, you double-minded. So this is talking about inside, our hearts and our minds. And so he's saying... 
if we're going to draw near to God, we need to do two things. We need to cleanse our hands. We need to deal with outwardly sin in our lives. But we also need to purify our hearts. We need to deal with wrong thinking, wrong heart attitudes, wrong uh, intentions. And this is the part that we can sometimes miss because we think all that God requires of us is that we do things right and obey. Well, no. He, if you really want to see him, if you really want to get to know him, you've got to get, just get to know what action he expects. You've got to get to know his heart. And so he wants to reveal himself to us, but for us to perceive him, to truly understand him, we have to conform not only to our outward actions, to his, but our inward minds and hearts to his. Remember we talked about that last week uh, in Jeremiah 31, 33, the new covenant, I will write, I will put my law, uh, no, I will write my law, which one? I forget. It's I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, minds and hearts, right? And so he's going, we're, again, that concept that we're going deeper, that a pure heart doesn't just mean I'm not sinning. A pure heart means I'm actually trying to conform my heart and my mind to God's heart and mind. I'm learning his ways and his intentions, and I'm going beyond just not doing the wrong thing to having a heart and a mind to think and act the right way, right? And so it goes a little deeper. Now, I don't think James came up on this on his own. I think he stole it from Psalm 24 which is okay. Uh, he was allowed to do that. Uh, let me just read this to you so that you see that we have the exact same scenario going on here. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Uh, I'm going to skip some of it. It says, Who may stand in his holy place? Which is what we want, right? To get in the presence of God. To know God. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has, one, clean hands, and two, a pure heart. There it is again right? And then at the end of this, in verse 6, he says, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. There's the drawing near part. He goes, there's a generation that's going to seek God, seek his face, that speaks of intimacy, seek to know God intimately by cleansing their hands and purifying their hearts, right? And so, I am saying that the, uh, this beatitude is saying we will be happier seeking to know and confirm to his heart, not just actions. Again, it's a, it's a call to deeper intimacy, uh, that we want to uh, seek his face. You know what that means, right? Uh, if, if, uh, if I come over to you and I'm talking to you and pretty soon I'm six inches away from your face... That's a little intimate, all right? You're either going to really like me or go somewhere else. But we are doing that with Jesus. We're going, I want to know you. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what your heart is. I want intimacy with you. It's not enough that I just know what you want me to do to behave correctly. I want to know how you're thinking. I want to know what your heart is in this situation. I want to know what your heart is for that person. And what he's saying is, the pure in heart, if we'll do that, he'll begin to show us that. He'll begin to uh, let us see God in a new way. He'll begin to let us perceive God uh, in a greater way. 
right? So if we want to increase our ability to see and perceive God, we have to draw near uh, cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. Now, purifying your hearts is a bit of work, right? But you're on it, and, uh, and we're working. Amen? Okay. That's two. The next one is peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. And I put in your notes that peacemakers have fully embraced God's intentions. Basically, it's just going, I get it. I'm ready to join in the family business. What's the family business? Peace. That's what we do. It's what the family of God does. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're about peace. And so, peacemakers are, are called sons of God because they're starting to look like their dad, right? Who makes peace. It's that simple. If you want to look like dad, be a peacemaker. So let's talk about what it means to be a peacemaker. Now, um, again, family business, Jesus is the prince of peace, right? It's his title. So everywhere Jesus goes, peace. There are so many verses on peace. John, uh, when we're looking at John 14 and 15, uh, you know, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives peace. You know, he, he just brought peace everywhere he went. And so we're supposed to be like that. Um, in uh, Luke 2, since it's Christmas, remember some angels showed up, and there was a heavenly choir, and there was some shepherds, and the angels were telling the shepherds about Jesus being born in a manger. You remember what they said? They sang a song that announced the intentions of God with this, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's it. Angels, why are you here? Oh, we want to tell you about Jesus. What's the big deal? Well, he's coming to earth to bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That was the announcement. And so we, if we're going to be in the family business, have to be all about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which is another way for making, word for making peace. Now, I primarily, it's the ministry of telling people they can be at peace with God through Jesus who died for their sins, through the blood of Christ. But it's broader than that. It's also just the ministry of making peace, of being a peacemaker, of bringing people into reconciliation, of peacemaking as a value. And here's, here's what I mean by it. Well, I'll show you here in a minute in the, in the verse. But it's, it's, you know, valuing bringing people together and making peace. Now, I can't believe how often this takes me to the internet, but here we go. Uh, because it seems like we live our lives on there now. And uh, it's, may I just say, if I don't know if you have how many followers you have or whatever, but uh, it is impossible to express yourself before five or 10,000 people and not have someone be upset. If you just, if you just say that the weather was nice today, you've started an argument. Because, you know, there's a lot of people on there. So we got to think about this whole thing, but uh, not just there. I'm talking about just in our lives right here, too. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And I love in Romans 14, verse 19, uh, Paul says this. He says, let us therefore pursue the things which make for peace. So 
We have to do that, right? Pursue the things that make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. In other words, our goal needs to be peace and building one another up. Here's the interesting thing. If you read Romans 14, the context of that whole passage is disputes over religious behavior. No. The church is losing their peace over disputes about religious behavior? Can that be true? That's what Paul's talking about. Apparently it was true then too. Now they were arguing over what day they should celebrate as holy or what foods they should eat and not eat, right? They weren't, now they weren't as advanced as us. Now that we can, we can over, argue over worship songs and whether it's too loud or carpeting or, you know, all kinds of stuff. We have more to argue over than they ever did. But the point is this. Uh, some of these arguments, maybe even Bible arguments, maybe they're doctrine arguments, right? Some of them weren't. The point is, these disputes don't bring peace. And if it's not a dispute over a core value, like whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, it's not that big a deal. And so Paul is saying we would be happier prioritizing making peace over making points. Now, I like making a good point. I hope I just made one. Right? But I want to prioritize making peace over just getting my point across. And we don't always do that. The church actually, I, I don't know, I don't want to say it depends on who and when and where, but let's just say we haven't always been great at prioritizing peace over making our point. Some of us, don't raise your hands, are willing to stir it all up just if, as long as we get to make our point and leave turmoil behind us. And Jesus advocates that we make peace, that we prioritize making peace over making our point. Just let some stuff go. Let them sing it wrong. Or, you know, let them use the wrong color, whatever. Just let some stuff go. Let them believe the wrong thing about a doctrine that isn't going to have any difference whether they go to heaven or hell. It's okay. Just let some stuff go. Be at peace. Now, what I want you to know, uh, while we're prioritizing being a peacemaker, I want to draw a line here. I'm not talking about compromise. We do not compromise the Word of God to bring peace. We let some stuff go that isn't more important than peace and fellowship. We don't let the big stuff go. I'm not saying... Yeah, I believe Jesus is the only way. You believe Jesus and, and any uh, several other things are valid ways to get to heaven. And eh, we'll just let that go. No, that's not what I'm talking about. That's compromise. That's different. That's not being a peacemaker. That's being something else that we're going to talk about on the next one. Okay? So we're not talking about compromise here. I want to make that clear. We're talking about letting some stuff go. Okay, number eight, the last one. Uh, and this one gets interesting. Uh, this is probably the most counterintuitive one. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It sounds so exciting, it makes you want to run right out there and find some persecution, doesn't it? Okay, that's not really what's going on. Let me make sure you understand it. See, we all, every day, have a choice when we're confronted with truth or error uh, to embrace the fear of God or the fear of man. And they look different. The fear of God means no matter what, I want to be right with God. The fear of man means no matter what, I want people to like me. And those are incompatible, by the way. And so we all have to pick which one we're going to follow. And so uh, what I want you to know, what I put down for verse 8, I'm sorry, for point 8, rather than putting down persecution, I put down the fear of God. The fear of God brings great heavenly reward. The fear of God brings great heavenly reward because in eternal perspective, by eternal perspective, I mean, what are you going to be doing 200,000 years from now? You ever thought about that? Why don't you think about it? You're going to be alive, aren't you? See, that's an eternal perspective. You start thinking about that, and what you're doing 10 years from now doesn't seem as important. Right? I've done that where I was counseling sometimes. People were in an argument, they couldn't get over it. I go, you guys think you're still going to be mad at each other 10,000 years from now? They looked at each other. Probably. Think you'll be in heaven? Think you'll be friends? Why not just do it now? Just a thought. It's an eternal perspective. So an eternal perspective frees us from the need to protect our lives. See, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have an eternal perspective, if you think this is all you get, and you fight for every scrap, you got to protect your life. you got to get stuff, and you got to have stuff that makes you happy, and you got to be happy fast because life is short, and you might die soon, and then you got nothing, Right? It's not us. We have an eternal perspective. That's what Matthew 16 is talking about when he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's talking about being happier in this life, not just eternity. He's saying if you'll give up the pursuit of the good life, I'll give you the eternal good life. And I'll give you a better life even here, even though the world might not think it's better. And then he goes on. He says, by the way, what does it profit you if you have an awesome life and lose your soul? What does it profit you if you spend 80 or 90 years being wealthy and loved and well-respected and blah, 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 if you spend the next few hundred thousand years in a lake of fire? How is that profitable to you? You say, have an eternal perspective. And then he ends it by saying, in verse 27, I am coming back, and I am bringing reward. So he gets into that reward thing. So he encourages us to fear him more than the fear of man, because we're going to live forever, and uh, having an eternal perspective will free us from protecting our lives. And so here's what we see. We're not really seeking persecution, so feel, you know, feel free to avoid it if you can. Uh, I certainly will. Uh, but what he's saying is, 
we have to accept it because it's inevitable. Uh, Jesus in John 15 says, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It will happen, but only if he's really your master. If you compromise, you can avoid persecution. But if he's really your master, someone's not going to like it. Uh, Paul told Timothy, yes, in all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, you don't have to suffer persecution as long as you're willing to give up living godly in Christ Jesus. But if you decide to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. You understand? Now, the good news is it's mostly verbal. Well, I don't know if that's good news. It depends on how important it is for you to be liked. <laughs> but it's mostly verbal. We even see here, uh, when they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So most of the time, the persecution we're going to put up with is verbal. Basically, the world hated Jesus, and they said bad things about him, and they're going to hate us and say bad things about us. And so uh, all those who desire to live godly, uh, your godly life is going to annoy people who don't want to come into the light but want to keep their darkness. It's going to annoy them, and the only way they can uh, deal with that is to talk badly about you. Because if you're right, then they're wrong, and that's, you know, painful. Yeah? And so it's going to happen. It's not that we're seeking persecution. It's that we will be reviled. Christians will be spoken against. You specifically, maybe, will be spoken against because of a stand you take. Maybe this has happened in your work or your school or your family. People ridicule you behind your back because, you know, we just saw it, the new speaker of the house. Uh, uh, his son and him have an accountability agreement that they won't look at porn. He got ridiculed for that. What has our country come to when uh, we're mocking our congressmen because they won't look at porn? Right? That's this. And he just ignored it because he has the fear of God. So, by the way, in the parallel passage, remember the parallel passage of this is in Luke. In Luke 6, when it deals with this beatitude, in Luke uh, 6, verse 26, he says, uh, he adds to this, Beware when all men speak well of you. Ooh. Right? Because it's inevitable they didn't speak well of Jesus. Well, not all men. So it's inevitable. Somebody's not going to like you uh, representing Jesus. Now, if it's really important to you that everybody speaks well of you, you're going to have to compromise for that. Especially if it's really important that everybody speaks well of you online. You're going to have to compromise a lot. You understand. So we have to decide fear of God Fear of man. Is it important that God thinks well of me? Or is it important that people speak well of me? I'm pretty sure you can't have both. Okay. Anyway, fear of God brings great heavenly rewards. Let's look at how the apostles handled it. In Acts chapter 5, this is interesting. And when they had called for the apostles, this is the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leadership uh, council. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, so that's a little bit more than just, you know, saying they didn't like them. They actually gave them a good beating. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. 
So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. These are weird guys. They, took, they got beat, and they went and had a party. They went away rejoicing. They went and started worshiping. They thought this was awesome. But that's weird, right? Now, even consider this. Not only that, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is what got them beat in the first place. And they specifically told them, stop doing that. So they went, they enjoyed their beating, and they kept preaching Jesus. What is wrong with these guys? What do they know that we don't know? Now, I want to point something else out to you. These are the same guys that just uh, weeks, maybe months earlier, when Jesus was being arrested, fled for their lives so that they would be safe, and Peter even denied Jesus. Now, I don't know, it doesn't tell me, but how happy did they seem when Jesus made breakfast for them that morning? And restored Peter. Did they seem like happy guys? Where were they happier? What is up with a bunch of guys being happier when they got beat for preaching Jesus than when they escaped the beating and fled to safety? I think it's the thing we were talking about. The fear of God versus the fear of man. I think they gave in to the fear of man the first time and it didn't make them happy. I think the second time they went... Yes, we're sticking with the fear of God, and they beat us. We're awesome. We were kind of worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. We did it right this time. I'm telling you guys, it's counterintuitive, but we will be happier suffering for righteousness than pursuing safety. Let me say that again. We will be happier suffering for righteousness than pursuing safety. Safety is a big deal. People talk, keep talking about got to be safe, got to keep people safe. What if the cost of being safe is compromising the Word of God? What if the cost of being safe is saying, yeah, they're, they're, they're beating up people who pray for Israel. I'm going to say Palestinians are better, so I'll be safe. I'm going to ignore what I read in you know, Romans 11. We'll just not talk about that. that. That's very real right now, isn't it? So safety is kind of an illusion. We will be happier suffering and having the fear of God for righteousness' sake than pursuing safety and living under the oppression of the fear of man. I'm just telling you, you might be safer going with the fear of man in terms of your physical situation, but I don't think you'll be happier. I think we'll be happier with the fear of God. Now, and we talked about this the last time, being peacemakers. Don't confuse pursuing safety with peace. In other words, uh, I'm willing to compromise an application of the Word of God. You apply it this way, I apply it that way. We both love Jesus. I'm willing to compromise that for the sake of peace. I am not willing to compromise the Word of God itself to avoid persecution. In other words, yeah, we apply that differently, but when you start saying this thing that the Bible clearly says is sin is no longer sin and you can do it, I can't go with you there. Even if you're going to revile me, 
I, I, I would like, I'm going to be as kind as I can be. I'm going to try and be a peacemaker. But if, uh, if the choice is uh, being at peace with you or being aligned with the Word of God, I'm going to go ahead and choose being reviled. All right? Do you understand where these lines are falling? So we're doing everything we can to be at peace with all men, especially those who believe. That's Bible, by the way, Galatians. And, uh, but we're not willing to compromise the clear standards of the Bible that we see. It's that simple. And so we are peacemakers who are consumed with the fear of God. Amen? All right, so the four that you work on this week, so that by Christmas you're awesome. Uh, being merciful, pursuing a pure heart, being a peacemaker, and valuing the fear of God over the fear of man. Now, let's do just a little bit, and then I'm going to, we'll turn you loose here in a minute. Um, we have like a Christmas carol or something we want to end with, babe? Okay. I thought she'd be ready. All right. So, I want to tie this together with the next section, really the next two sections, but we'll just kind of hint at that. Uh, the next section uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. What I want you to see is Jesus isn't starting a new sermon here. He's just given us the eight values that will cause us to live a happy life. And so as he goes into this next part, it's building on these eight values. And he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? What do you think the flavor is? Yeah, these eight values. This is what makes us flavory. Does that, that work? Flavory? Close enough. If it loses flavor, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That's kind of what happens to a flavorless church. It gets trampled. You are the light of the world. What's our light? The same stuff. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. I'm telling you guys, Living like this cannot be hidden. It will stand out in darkness. Can't hide it. You go, you go to work and be like this, people will notice. Can't hide it. City set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. I'll just be this way at church. Not out there, because I'm going to get in trouble out there being this way. That's a basket. But on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what he's saying is that living these eight values is our witness. It is the witness of the Father's heart. Not just his uh, desires, not just what's wrong and what's right, but his actual heart. And so these eight values motivate us to perform good works that reveal the Father's heart. It's not just, uh, now, if I just, you know, feed the poor, well, everybody's feeding the poor. You can find all kinds of organizations that don't have anything to do with Jesus that are feeding the poor, right? It's when I feed the poor, but I stop and talk to the poor, or I love the poor, or I, I be, I'm a peacemaker with them, or I'm, I'm showing mercy, or I'm, I'm helping them to, you know, it's when we begin to do it but do it with the character of the Father, these eight values. People go, oh, that's not just a human. They glorify the Father. They may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
because you're doing inhuman things in the earth. You're doing godlike things, like showing mercy when no one else is, or being a peacemaker when everyone else wants to fight, or fearing God instead of men and taking the ridicule and just smiling and loving him. They may not say it, but people are noticing that. Again, your light cannot be hidden. You start living like this, people notice it. And then uh, I'll end with this. The next section is, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he talks about, uh, in this next section, how the law uh, isn't going to be taken away, but is going to be fulfilled. We'll talk about that more in uh, the next time when we, in our next section on the Sermon on the Mount. But I just wanted to give you this. Uh, what he's saying is these eight values don't replace the law, but they satisfy its intent. It's what we talked about in the beginning, that we're moving from outward behavior to the intentions of the heart. So Jesus has just given them all this. He's going, look, I'm not doing away with the law. I'm telling you, here's a way deeper way to fulfill the law. These things will not only uh, cause us to do the outward things of the law, but they will satisfy the heart intentions of the law. Not just the doing it, but the why we're doing it. And doing it on a whole nother level. Amen? Amen. Alright, so uh, if we could have the band up, we have, I think, time for one closing song. Carol, you have a carol? Because it's very Christmassy. Alright, so you guys are going to come back from Christmas, uh, doing all eight of these, awesome. Now, some of you, if you have unbelievers in your family that are coming for Christmas, you're going to have an opportunity to do some of these <laughs> over the holidays, right? They will give you opportunity. It'll be awesome. Just make some peace. All right, let's stand. Lord, we just pray as we honor you, especially in this season as we honor you, Lord, we pray for the grace to represent you. Lord, I want these eight values in me. And Lord, you know that they're hard because my flesh doesn't like them. The world doesn't like them. But Lord, it's enough that you like them. So Lord, we ask you, give us grace to pursue these values in our hearts. Lord, we are trusting that you are patient, that you are kind, you will work with us, that you want to help us get there. We know we can't do this except by your Spirit. So Lord, we just ask you, fill your people this morning with your Spirit. Give us understanding, each of us individually, for how we can pursue these, in what ways we need to uh, grow in grace in these areas. We just ask for your help, Jesus.